This is Looking Closer. I'm Jeffrey Overstreet. Ten years ago, the Academy Awards nominated five films for Best Animated Feature Film. Coraline, directed by Henry Selleck. Up, Pixar's movie from Pete Docter. The Fantastic Mr. Fox, by Wes Anderson, of course. The Princess and the Frog, a traditionally animated Disney film by Ron Clements and John Musker. And The Secret of Kells, my personal favorite, from directors Tom Moore and Nora Twomey. Few films from the last decade have been as important and as memorable for me as The Secret of Kells. It is an extraordinary achievement in animation, in storytelling, and frankly, in the kind of cinema that captivates me with what it has to suggest about the gospel, about wisdom, and about the reconciling and transforming power of love. I've written a great deal about The Secret of Kells, and I will probably record an episode of this sometime in the near future where I celebrate just how much it continues to impress me. So naturally, I have been looking forward to anything to come out of the Cartoon Saloon studio, anything with the names Tom Moore or Nora Twomey on them, and I have not been disappointed. Song of the Sea is another masterpiece. I may not connect with it as personally as The Secret of Kells, but most people I know who have seen both films prefer Song of the Sea. Then came The Breadwinner, directed by Nora Twomey, a story about a girl in Afghanistan who is trying to survive the pressures and prejudices of the Taliban, but then also trying to survive the more direct threat of the Allied bombings in the early 2000s. That's a film I share with my academic writing students, my students who are interested in writing about film, because I think it is such a fantastic example of character development and of finding just the right kind of visual style that will reinforce what a story has to offer. I could not wait to see Wolf Walkers, the film that is just now, as I record this, opening in theaters around the country. Sadly, it is opening in theaters at the peak of the pandemic, and very few people even know that movies are playing in theaters again, and if they do, they are probably going to avoid theaters because of the risk of exposure to the virus. That's not to say that movie theaters around the country are doing everything they can to make it a safe experience for moviegoers in the hopes of surviving the pandemic. Not just the moviegoers, not just the staff at the movie theaters, but movies on the big screen as an experience. Well, I am not going up the road to see Wolf Walkers on the big screen yet. I just don't think it's the wisest choice. But fortunately, I was able to see Wolf Walkers during a very brief window that it was available as a streaming option at an online film festival. It has done that with several film festivals over the last few months, and so I know a few other people who have seen it. And we all agree that once again, Tom Moore and Cartoon Saloon have done it. In this case, to be more accurate, it's directors Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, who has worked with Moore on previous films. And I am happy to report that it is well worth the wait, and in some ways I think it is the most accomplished work of animation yet from the studio. They are beginning to position themselves as the kind of smaller operation like Studio Ghibli. 
that can eventually develop a stronger reputation than Disney by focusing on distinctiveness and surprise. Their stories continuously surprise me. Their animation expands the range of what I understood was possible in that medium. So while The Secret of Kells came along in an amazing year, and of course it lost the Oscar to Pixar's Up, uh, that's a vote I would have cast differently, it remains the gold standard as far as I'm concerned. I am happy to recommend Wolfwalkers to you today. I don't know that I'm going to recommend you go see it in a theater, although it deserves the big screen more than anything I've seen in 2020. But it will be available very soon on Apple TV and as a rental, I assume, on other platforms. One of the best things I have to report about Wolfwalkers is that it returns Tom Moore and Ross Stewart to the territory of Irish folklore. It's not all folklore. Uh, much of it is grounded in history. It's 1650 in the small town of Kilkenny, and Oliver Cromwell is raging across Ireland, conquering whatever he can, and he has taken over this town. In this small town, a man named Bill, voiced by Sean Bean of The Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, has sworn to serve the Lord Protector, voiced by Simon McBurney, saying he will obey and follow orders to wipe out the forest's wolves so they can clear out the forests and prepare them to be chopped down and cleared for agriculture and other endeavors of these new colonizers. Bill's daughter is named Robin Goodfellow, and that's a substantially significant name in English literature. You probably recognize it. If you look it up, I think it will uh, incline you in a certain way uh, to see this character as a shapeshifter, as uh, a transformative element in her own world. Uh, she is voiced, by the way, by a young actress named Honor Neefsey. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But this is where the film begins to resemble The Secret of Kells in, well, in my opinion, too many ways, narratively. I mean, for example, in The Secret of Kells, you had young Brendan, who was sort of oppressed by the rules of the Abbey. He looked out through breaks in the wall at the nearby forest and wondered what the rest of the world was like. And that particular scenario tested his obedience to his uncle. Before long, he was slipping out through the wall and into the woods in search of a secret, in search of something that would enable him to engage in the cosmic battle of light versus darkness, in search of a talisman, basically. Similarly here, Robin Goodfellow lives inside this walled city full of uh, angular geometric designs, and she too is looking out at the woods. She wants to be like her father, hunting wolves, but really what she wants is freedom. Freedom from these strict definitions for her gender in this culture. And it doesn't take long before she is running through the woods, trying to get something back that's important to her, only to find out that her understanding of the wolves has been distorted by prejudice. And perhaps there is a better way for her going forward. She is about to meet Maeve, played by Ava Whitaker. Maeve is a young girl from a different culture entirely. The Wolfwalkers, a mystical, 
society in the woods who live like humans by day, although with magical healing powers, and as wolves by night. I have to admit, I was reminded of the film Lady Hawk on more than one occasion here, and I think that's deliberate. There is a particular moment when the, the music soars and something shocking happens involving an arrow in flight, and that entire moment seemed um, a clear nod to Lady Hawk as a source of inspiration, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. In the woods, Robin meets Maeve, and a friendship is formed not dissimilar from that of Brendan and Ashlyn from The Secret of Kells. Ashling, as you remember, was a sort of spirit guide, uh, a creature both human in some aspects and wolf in other aspects, a fairy. And in their friendship, they began to break down the false definitions that had defined not only their identities, but their cultures. They began to find a place of greater freedom and play and possibility in friendship and love and acceptance, even embrace of the other. I don't want to describe what's happening with Robin and Maeve as an erotic love story. They're just young girls after all, and we don't see enough examples of a rich and rewarding friendship here. However, I cannot deny that there is sort of a tease of possibility that this might be a lifelong friendship that blossoms into something more in the days ahead. Perhaps it's just that I've just seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire and the movie Ammonite is coming right up, but uh, that possibility seems to be in the air, and frankly, I would be delighted to see these two young women form a lifelong partnership in view of the options available to them in the world presented to us here, which seem so limiting, so unfair, so abusive. Once Robin has crossed over into Maeve's world and begins to see with new eyes just what her people, and yes, her father, are subjecting this sacred, vulnerable culture to, she begins to see with new eyes. And so do we. The animation in this film is revelatory. Um, I want to quote Sam Adams from his review at Slate. He says, While the boundaries of digital animation ought to be limitless, the vast majority of it has trended in the same direction, away from the medium's cartoon origins and toward adding a veneer of realism to stories that don't benefit from it. Boy, I couldn't agree with him more there. Adam says, personally, I blame whoever decided that Shrek needed pores. The Irish studio Cartoon Saloon, he says, founded by Tom Moore, Nora Twomey, and Paul Young, has gone in the opposite direction, making movies that suggest another world lying just under our own, one you can almost see if you hold it up to the light. Well said, Sam Adams. I don't know that I could highlight any more clearly what is special and distinctive about Cartoon Saloon's work here. They have taken the remarkable blend of hard, angular shapes from The Secret of Kells um, in, in the world of the Abbey where reason is, is crowding out and corrupting faith and possibility 
and the wild, swirling, spiraling shapes of the Celtic knotwork that you see throughout the forest in The Secret of Kells. In the same way, there is a sort of distortion and um, surreality to the wilderness here that is just enchanting um, and also unsettling, and it should be, because this is the wilderness. And this is where I find myself at odds with some of the other critics about this film. For example, in a review at Screen Rant by, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Debopriya Dutta, we read, The greatest strength of Wolfwalkers lies in its unabashed celebration of the spirit of paganism and a story deeply entrenched in Celtic tradition and folklore. Well, sure, the movie does clearly celebrate some aspects of paganism. But what I see here is something that I saw in The Secret of Kells as well, that while a distortion of Christianity is set up as a corrupting influence, and the villain of this movie is without a doubt a, a Bible-quoting evangelist and colonizer and conqueror, what wins the day in Wolfwalkers, as in The Secret of Kells, is the gospel itself, uncorrupted. The idea that we should make ourselves vulnerable and reach across to the other in hope of love and embrace and transformation and reconciliation. I see in all of Cartoon Saloon's movies a heartbreak over the way we divide up the world and a delight in the discovery that two completely different worlds can become one for the benefit of the whole world. So, when Robin and Maeve set out to rescue Maeve's mother from a cage, and frankly, they are also along the way going to try and save Robin's father from his own kind of cage, what we're seeing is an illustration of Jesus' own teaching. Now, this is not something that is made explicit and emphasized within the world of uh, Wolfwalkers, uh, and it was, frankly, not made explicit enough, in my opinion, in The Secret of Kells either. I mean, how did they get to the end of the movie The Secret of Kells without ever specifically mentioning what the text of the Book of Kells actually is? But it is here that I find not only the greatest strength of the film being something more than just a celebration of paganism, it is also where I find the greatest weakness of the film. I was very disappointed to get to the end of Wolfwalkers and find that they were going to give in to the formula that I find most dismaying in a lot of Disney films. And that is the formula that brings everything down to a showdown between good guys and bad guys and seems to think that the best possible ending for this story, and the most redeeming one for the audience, is that sense of almost gloating that we feel when we see a villain overcome. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I'm not going to get into the specifics of how everything works out in Wolfwalkers. And frankly, I think there is a, a door left open, a, a possibility uh, for uh, the one we are going to eventually see overpowered. But what this film is missing that The Secret of Kells had was a sense of possible redemption, a sense of possible hope for even someone who has brought about a great deal of bloodshed in the name of arrogance and fear. Wolfwalkers doesn't quite reach those heights. Nevertheless, 
It is still an extraordinary movie, by far the most enchanting visually that I have seen in 2020. And when I see it again, I won't be surprised if I decide that it's my favorite film of this year. We'll see. In order to dig deeper into the rewards of Wolfwalkers and to celebrate what's so great about it, I called up a good friend of mine. Dr. Lindsay Marshall is currently the Chancellor's Postdoctoral Fellow in American Indian Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Her research focuses on Native American history, but she has a passion for history education like nobody I know, and she is also deeply passionate about environmental history. So as I was watching Wolf Walkers, I just kept saying to myself, this movie seems like it was made for Dr. Lindsay Marshall. So it is my pleasure to share with you a conversation I had with Dr. Marshall just after I saw this film for the first time. This film blew me away. I was so, like you mentioned earlier, I was so worried that, you know, they were going to fumble on <laughs> at the goal line uh, with these movies because I have been so astounded by their work, particularly the Irish triptych work. Um, Secret of Kells is a film that has become our family's advent tradition because it wow. is the most stunning manifestation of hope and Christ that that we've ever seen on film. It's just amazing. Um, Song of the Sea spoke to me really deeply, especially now that I have a little guy. Um, just thinking about this kid navigating this grief, but then also like how his parents are present and not, and, and him awakening to this magical world that he doesn't even know is around him all the time. Um, that's that scene at the end where his sister Sersha starts singing and it brings old Ireland out. I can barely talk about it without choking up. It's just yeah. so incredible. Um, so I had very, very high expectations for Wolfwalkers. And, and like you, when it started, I was going, oh, don't just repeat Secret of Kells a little bit later. <laughs> like, yeah. Please don't. And they didn't. Um, to, to me, the thing that I think I loved so much about this movie is how it, it really is a companion piece to those first two. And it really is together. There's such a story of Ireland and not just of Ireland, but of what has happened to Ireland and not just, I mean, this movie specifically talks about, you know, the British occupation and the assertion of kind of British uniformity on Irish spirituality and culture. Um, but the whole thing, I, my brother sent me this beautiful lecture by uh, the philosopher. He's a pre-Socratic philosopher, Peter Kingsley, who is also Irish. Um, and um, he was talking about how Western Europe has forgotten its sacredness. We've forgotten that all these pieces of our culture, uh, the discipline of logic and all that, um, have their roots in sacredness, not in just kind of logical materiality. And when I was watching this movie, all I could think of was how this was such, these three films together are such a beautiful depiction of that sacredness asserting itself again, that sacredness refusing to be contained. And, and I was struck by how in each of the films, um, it's a female sacred character who seeks a relationship with someone who has forgotten that mm, sacred wow. and pulls them into it. And then I cried a lot <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was just so beautiful because they managed to tell 
that same basic story of um, Ireland's spirit, like the spirit of that place coming and pulling people who were forgetting themselves back into themselves. But they told them in such beautifully distinct ways that each is really its own film. And I thought that was just lovely. There is an interesting connection with the way the Book of Kells is made. You know, these, these illuminated manuscripts are so often celebrating sp specific details of that culture, that time, that landscape, that environment, while also preserving the gospel, right? Um, yeah. Translating the gospel and bringing it to life in, in, um, in, in so many ways that uh, sort of translate it, that incarnate it in a new body. Um, and so one of the things I love about the movie, The Secret of Kells, is how it does that. It, it uh, is full of visual motifs from the actual Book of Kells. Um, and you know, I suspect, and they've made references to this for this new film, that, that they've also taken people they know and brought them to life in the animation. Um, so again, it's a new body, a new incarnation of a lasting and dynamic truth. What was interesting to me watching Wolfwalkers was how, like The Secret of Kells, uh, so, so much um, of the culture of the history come, comes into every aspect of the framing of uh, the style of the trees and the woods of um, the design of the characters. Um, and yet this is not a specifically religious story in terms of like, you know, th this is a story about the preservation of the gospel in this story. You have uh, again, sort of like what happens with the Abbot and the secret of Kells, you have a distortion of the gospel that right. is oppressing the people. I know plenty of uh, voices in Christian media who, if they saw this, would immediately condemn it for, for villainizing Christians. And I would be like, are you, what, what world are you living in? Because I can't look at the news or turn on the TV or, or glance at Twitter without seeing Christians behaving in this way, or I should say professing Christians behaving in this way. So this feels very timely and relevant to me. It is, it is incarnating the reality that the core concepts of the gospel, um, loving the other, listening to the other, attending to the other, um, you know, the old to kill a mockingbird sentiment of, um, you know, um, and now I'm going to botch the quote, but uh, <laughs> um, walking a mile in someone's shoes or whatever. Um, right. The poster for this, at least for now, that I've seen on Letterbox, is a picture of the character's hand yeah. in in that sort of shimmering apparition of a wolf paw, and that to me captures what's at the heart here. They're trying to uh, endorse again the redemptive, reconciling, transforming power of attending to the other and understanding their experience and becoming one of them, not just like intellectually understanding their plight, but becoming one of them yeah. uh, and how that can change and save and expand the world rather than inflicting one's manners on someone else as, as uh, the Lord protector says at one point he will do to this young woman. Right. Um, so it feels to me like an expansion of the secret of Kells, um, uh, a, an expansion of what they, how they think the gospel works in the world even in contrast to the way religious people weaponize and thus ruin their own 
concepts and language. Um, do you do you feel that these filmmakers that what's at the heart of this for them is preserving something about Ireland or preserving something about the history and the culture, or is it is it really about that core gospel idea of uh, loving the world, so loving the world that you give yourself for that world. I mean, that's, that's, I want to, I want to read into it a certain way. No, I want okay. <laughs> to find what, what I hope is there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. If that, I don't know if that resolves into one simple question, but what do you feel this movie is most about? So, I mean, my, my day job is being a historian and studying native history and the, these are all in some ways stories of colonization, which, you know, I Ireland's story is a story of colonization and in this kind of like middle colonization, right? And I, I think Secret of Kells capture, really all of them together capture it so well. To me, these three movies are about so many things, but one thing that they're all very clearly about is how we face fear. So, you know, the abbot in The Secret of Kells fears two things. He fears the Northmen, and he's right to do so. The movie doesn't tell him he's foolish. And, and he fears the, the world of spirit that's outside the walls of the Abbey. And he's right to do so. Crumb Crook is out there, and that's no yeah. joke. Yeah. Um, but his reaction is to build a wall, right? And, and Brendan is who we see navigate, you know, this, you know, the Abbot's fear in building a wall and um, Brother Aiden's fear in just running away. Brendan is the one who finds that middle way. To, to go into the thing that you fear, to face the thing that you fear, to act prudently, but then also to realize that there is great truth there. He can't write the gospel without, you know, those berries, for instance, right? He can't yeah. write it without um, the eye of crumb. Um, at great so, risk to himself, but yes, it's the risk, only way. Right, and then, you know, in Song of the Sea, the father is obviously fearful of losing his children. Um, and so that causes him to isolate and then to send them away. And, and each of these fears causes the, the protector father figure to, to shield the child in the story from what they really need, which is that connection with the spirit world around them. Um, and I saw that in Wolf Walker so clearly, and they made it really blatant. I mean, the Lord Protector character says, um, I wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget, what cannot be tamed must be destroyed, right? We are here... Um, he says, this wild land must be civilized. That is God's will. Um, that, that's what the people in the documents I study say, right? So, um, and, and I think the, the fear, right? The wolves are fierce. It, it's an unknown place. Um, but the fear in all of these protector characters, um, whether they're villainous or not, is in something unknown, assuming that nothing good is in it. And yes. my question about, you know, what you're asking about, like, is it this gospel of reaching out? Um, I really think it is because the, the huge mistake that the Christian church has always made with indigeneity, um, whether it's European indigeneity way back when, or indigeneity here in North America, is we have always assumed that we have to bring Christ somewhere, that he's not already there. Yes, yes. Not already talking to people and in relationship with people and that we mm -hmm. have nothing to learn from the relationship people have with Christ. Um, and so I see these films as a really beautiful presentation of that idea that, you know, there is real power to be respected in spiritual things, but also there is real truth and real beauty to be experienced, but only when you enter in relation, not when you show up to try to control. Yep. 
Yeah. So that, that's the thread I see running through all those films. So I'm curious. I mean, you, you and I are also uh, Miyazaki fans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, this movie, you know, just showed it Toronto. As we're recording this, it is not widely available yet um, soon. But um, in just a few responses I've read, I've already seen several people comparing it above all to Princess Mononoke. Yeah. And so I'm intrigued by this, this relationship to Miyazaki films because right away I can see there's a lot to talk about there. Um, Miyazaki tends to avoid villainizing anybody. Um, in, in a way, he makes a practice as a storyteller in developing empathy for other cultures so that even those that are weaponizing things and behaving in villainous ways, we still, by the end, hopefully we desire their redemption rather than their destruction. Right. Um, Princess Mononoke is not, this is a two-part question that I'm headed to, trust <laughs> me. Princess Mononoke is not a movie um, I would probably show to Huck just yet. I don't know, maybe you, maybe you would, maybe. But it's, I think it's terrifying. I saw it as an adult for the first time and I was terrified. It's, <laughs> Um, it, it takes on things in, in really visually graphic and nightmarish ways um, because it's wrestling with a, a very adult reality of, of human nature and the complexity of what it means to recognize evil but not damn the sinner. Um, watching this, I was, I was thinking about that and thinking, well, there is a lot of Miyazaki here. There is a focus on empathy. There is a focus on the connection between human behavior and the consequences on the natural world. Um, there is a real focus on concern for the destruction of the environment and the living things in it, which is very, very central to Miyazaki. Right. So I, um, I do have a question about, um, is this uh, Miyazaki for kids. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, there, there's plenty of Miyazaki that's Miyazaki for kids. Right. <laughs> but is this, is this uh, a good movie for children? Uh, and why or why not? But also, does this movie fall short in a way of what Miyazaki achieves by kind of, for all of its focus on empathy, showing a lack of curiosity in the townies and a lack of curiosity about Cromwell or the Lord Protector. Um, um, they start to resemble a little bit the, the, the storytelling. I don't want to spoil everything. The storytelling starts to resemble a little bit what happens to an awful lot of Disney villains at the end. Right. Do you feel like there was enough <laughs> nuance there or? Um, I mean, the townies I thought were really interesting. Um, because you have the woodcutters who reform. And, and one of my favorite lines in the whole movie uh, comes from the, the, the one with the big mustache who had a cameo yeah. as one of the monks in <laughs> Secret of Kells, I think. Um, he's, he's yelling at the Lord Protector and he says, um, St. Patrick made a deal with the old pagans and you're breaking it, right? You know, he's pointing toward that relation that, you know, the problem is breaking the relation, not you know, the existence of these things you can't control. Um, and so I really thought that that was interesting, that there was kind of a sympathy there, particularly with those woodcutters who had experienced, the, and, the, and the one who'd experienced the healing uh, from the wolfwalker. Um, what really fascinated me, though, was the, um, the kids in the town and how I, I, I was watching it just thinking, this is an Irish town, this is Kilkenny, and um, 
you know, the, the English are clearly in charge and like locking people in stocks in the center of town and telling everyone that the wolves are terrible when, you know, there's this mythology of the wolves because they've been there forever. Um, and these kids, how eager they are to lock Mev up and yeah. call her a wolf and um, treat her the way the their oppressors are treating them. And I just thought that was a really, it was almost a throwaway thing but because it was a necessary plot point for that moment, but it was so powerful to me thinking about the stories that, how, how easy it is to work these stories with kids, especially mm -hmm. how easy it is to convince kids that there are villains who maybe aren't villains and that sort of thing. Um, the Lord Protector, I was, I was a little disappointed in his nuance as a character, as a villain, and and how his storyline resolved. But I wasn't really that disappointed, mostly because I just really hate Cromwell. He's a creep, and I was happy to see him get the end I felt he deserved. In real he, he really, he really asked for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and especially his history in Ireland. And I think that probably what's going on there, and I don't want to, you know project on the filmmakers, but as somebody who has studied this history and who has ancestors from Ireland, um, I feel like it's, it's a little bit more how it should have gone. <laughs> There's some catharsis there, I think, some historical catharsis instead of where the story gave way to that a little bit, but I'm kind of happy with that. It's okay. And they really, they really zoom in on his, the way he perceives things in those, those final moments, listeners. Um, if you haven't seen it, you might just want to skip <laughs> the next minute or two because he becomes increasingly heretical and blasphemous in his final lines, in his final yes. moments. I mean, he's quoting Jesus on the cross for crying out loud. Yeah. And we are also shown that he is beginning to see the wolf world. He, I mean, because of what's just happened, he, he's beginning to see it. And even though he's beginning to see it, he can't, he doesn't understand what he's seeing. His heart, his, his, his hatred has calcified his vision so much that even when everything is revealed to him, he just yeah. holds tighter to his pride. So it really did feel like he is choosing uh, this end for himself um, and, and is, has made it so he's unable to see what is being offered him. Yeah. Uh, I, all, I, 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 was, I stayed all the way through the credits because I almost wondered if we wouldn't see some wolf creeping off in the background and thinking, right. oh, maybe a second chance. You know, didn't see it. Um, no. <laughs> maybe that'll be a deleted scene on the, oh, it's Apple TV. There may not be a hard copy. There may not be a Blu-ray. No, I, I don't know. I hope, they, I hope they think of us who cherish those things. Okay. Uh, yeah. The Townies, for the, if, if anybody got a chance to listen to the interview between um, the Toronto festival host and Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, um, they were talking about the style of the animation mm. and Moore and Stewart talked about how the townies look different than everybody else in the movie. Yeah. And that's because they based the style of those crowd scenes. They based the style of the people on the sort of block print um, format of making propaganda posters from that period. Oh, fantastic. And so the propaganda posters, often the lines from the, you know, from the print were not quite straight. And so you'd get this sort of blurring, this sort of double image, yeah. which I think is a wonderful way of suggesting that the world is out of focus for them and that they are, they are, they are people without integrity. They're blurred. They are, they are flimsy in a way because of their fear. 
Mm -hmm. um, that was something I hadn't seen in The Secret of Kells. The Secret of Kells is full of other ways that they visually represent fear. I love how the abbot's architectural drawings for the wall end up being, you know, a mirror image of Krom Kruik yes. himself. It's all very yeah. angular. Yeah. Um, whereas everything that reconciles is circular and spiraling and, and weaving in and out. And, and you get a suggestion of that here. But I thought that was really, I wouldn't have known that otherwise. Um, maybe, maybe art students would have, oh, I think I know what they're doing there. But that's, that's worth knowing. And I think that tells me that they are thinking about the townies. They are really thinking about who they are and what has happened to them and what they're up against now in, in unlearning what they have learned from this oppression. Right. Um, are you eager to show this to Huck? Yes, but he's so sensitive. It's going to be a while, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, he loves The Secret of Kells and he loves Song of the Sea. Secret so of Kells is not a picnic. It's scary. It's a very scary uh, one. And, and the part where they go to Crumb freaks him out. Um, and yeah, the Northmen freak too. him out. But yeah. <laughs> um, but I think he, he just really connected with Ashley in that movie. He loves Ashley. Yeah. And he loves the world of the forest, so he's willing to put up with it. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I hope he'll make it with wolf walkers. I think since it's wolves, he might be able to, to handle it. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll try him and see what happens. <laughs> We've made the mistake a couple of times of showing him a movie that was too scary. Now we don't get to watch that movie anymore. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. But also he loves The Nightmare Before Christmas, so there's really no telling what is going to scare him and what won't. Do you think this film these films now are guilty of, I want to call it the Stephen D. Gradonis test, <laughs> which is how many movies have the kids showing the, the adult, the adults, how it's done. Right. <laughs> um, uh, that's another question that I, it, it occurs to me because he brings it up so often and rightfully so it's too, it, it's too easy. It's too often. Uh, you know, if you just listen to the children, everything will be right. fine. And I'm like, what kids do you know? Yes. Um, <laughs> Do you think that, that that argument is relevant here? I don't. Because, uh, and, and, and I've pushed back on a few of those that he's accused of. I, I deeply disagree with him on the Moana instance because I oh, think, okay. oh, because um, to briefly state my case, um, <laughs> in, in particularly Polynesian indigenous cultures, women are the knowledge keepers and the authorities. And so her father is being junior knows best. Moana is calling him back into what he should be doing to listen to his mother. Um, so that's my argument. It didn't really convince anyone, but that's my argument. <laughs> um, Maybe but, that's true here too then to some extent, but anyway. I think, I think so. I think in these films, they don't really fall for it because the kids the kids don't have a clear thing to do. Like, um, you know, Colin in Song of the Sea wants to get home. Um, but that's, a, that's about as clear, you know, Brenda needs to get the berries for Brother Aiden. Um, Merlin runs away. So Robin, Robin Goodfellow, by the way, we haven't talked about how glorious it is that that's her name. We have to talk, we have to talk about that. <laughs> and, um, my wife, Anne, was very curious about that, uh, that detail. Um, and I'm interested in, in your reading of that, but yeah. Oh, yes, yes. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think the kids fall into that because they're not, they're not presenting their parents with an argument for how things should be. They're being called into something. And that's something very different, I think, yes. than the, if you just listen to the kids, everything would be fine trope, which is super overdone and super boring. I like that distinction a lot. 
Yes, yes. There is there is a greater power at work, and the children maybe are a bit more susceptible. Yeah. Um, which is fair. And they're less fearful. Yeah. Which is interesting because they're not not fearful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not not fearful, but they're more impulsive in pursuing what they love and want to save. Um, she wants Merlin back. And the first thing she does is drop her weapon, which I think is fantastic. Yes, yeah, that is great. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. So tell me, yeah, tell me your 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 thoughts about the name Robin Goodfellow. Um, oh. I uh, I was surprised watching the movie because I, I hadn't looked closely enough at the promotional stuff, and I thought, like The Secret of Kells, it was about a boy and a girl. Yeah. Um, that shows you, you know, how how influenced I am by character design. Um, I, I thought that the outfit uh, that Robin wears, uh, <laughs> that that's why I made that assumption. And the movie got started. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is <laughs> this is not what I this is this has a little bit of breadwinner in it. Um, and then the name Robin Goodfellow, and I'm like, I know that name, I know that name, and Anne says, that's, that's uh, Shakespeare, right? That's Puck. Mm-hmm. Um, so why Robin Goodfellow? Well, I mean, I just, I went straight to Shakespeare um, because she's English, and Robin Goodfellow, and I, I was Puck in a production in college, so I really, really, really love the character. That <laughs> um, It's my favorite of the Shakespearean plays. I know it's kind of a trite one to love, but it's just so beautiful. Um, it's it's the easy one to love, I guess. Don't um, don't don't demean comedies. That's why they never show up at the Oscars. It's a exactly, shame. Exactly, exactly, and and it's just such a neat world that is built in that show, and and the way the characters swap uh, roles all the time is just fantastic. But but I I really I was really excited when they revealed the last name Goodfellow because I I thought okay I know where this is going she's gonna have to be like some sort of spirit like yeah. mediator right shapeshifter yeah and then her counterpart is Mev uh, like Queen Mev <laughs> of the fairies and I just yeah. thought that was so beautiful because it's again you know Robin Goodfellow Puck is the quintessential English version of Mev, the very Irish, you know, fair folk. And um, it was just such a lovely thing to to play with the idea of those two characters being yeah. friends. I thought that was yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, I remember the days when I was hard pressed to think of movies that had strong representations of intimate platonic male friendships, intimate platonic female friendships. And I'm not rushing to label this as platonic. I mean, they're right. very, very young. Right. Like there are insinuations here, hints mm-hmm. here that this might be a lifelong romance. Um, but still, I think it's so great that, that we have another example of a movie about a friendship yeah. um, that doesn't, doesn't rely on the possibility of romance to hold an audience's attention. It's just too easy. I remember those terrifying stories when Peter Jackson was, um, building his trilogy that they were going to make Samwise a girl because, you know, people would just find uh, the love story at the heart of this so much more appealing. I'm like, we, we have, we have those. Right. <laughs> We've seen it. <laughs> I have a hard time finding uh, boys and young men who know what it is to have a true friendship because we've so fractured our understanding of gender in this world. Right. Um, they feel like it's a weakness to have a close friend. And so that's one of the things that shines out in the, in the breadwinner to me and also in this. 
Well, and I, I like the, the female friendship in this. Like you mentioned, there are hints that as they grow, perhaps that friendship will change into something else. But they're just hints. And yeah. it's, it, it can go, the relationship is allowed to be what it is. And its potentiality doesn't One change what the relationship is in this movie. And it's beautiful. Um, yeah. Because it really could, uh, like, believably develop in any direction from there. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. They let them just be two people that connect. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine yeah. that. Well, it's so great to talk to you about a movie. And um, I mean, I'm seeing you on a Zoom screen. People listening to this won't. But um, uh, I, w I hope someday we get to watch this together. Yes. Um, ideally in a theater. I don't know. You know, Someday. stranger, stranger things have happened. Well, you and I are both, uh, as we record this in a, a risky situation, uh, teaching, although you're mostly, you're all online right now and I'm doing a little bit of both. Um, but, uh, I hope you'll be safe. Same to and, you. Um, let's do this again. Next time Absolutely. we both get this excited about a movie. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for your time. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. This is super great. <laughs>that was my conversation with Dr. Marshall, and I'm so glad you were able to share it with me. I hope you'll get to see Wolfwalkers on a big screen one of these days. I'm not sure how that's going to come about, but in the meantime, don't wait. Watch it on the biggest television screen you can find with the best sound system you can find, and maybe make a little mini film festival out of it with your family, because I think every one of Cartoon Saloon's feature films has been a new standard-setting endeavor. And I can't wait to see what they do next. In fact, I'm just going to admit it right here. It's one of my dreams that I'll be able to interview uh, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart and Nora Twomey and bring you one or all of those conversations uh, on this podcast. You've been listening to a Master Shot episode of Looking Closer with Jeffrey Overstreet. You can find more than two decades worth of writing on the arts, especially movies, at lookingcloser.org. You can follow me at facebook.com slash lookingcloser. I'm also on Twitter as Overstreet. Both the writing at lookingcloser.org and these recordings are made possible by those readers and listeners generous enough to respond with donations. To learn how you can support Looking Closer, email me at overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. That's right, you heard it, overstreetlookingcloser at gmail.com. You can also dig deeper by picking up a copy of my memoir of dangerous moviegoing, a book called Through a Screen Darkly. Or you can explore my adventures in storytelling by reading the novel Aurelia's Colors and its three sequels. Those books share a lot of territory with The Secret of Kells and Wolfwalkers, let me tell you. Original music for this episode comes from Todd Fadel, a friend of mine since early childhood and a musical genius like nobody I know. If you have any questions about what you've heard, email me, overstreetlookingcloser, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jeffrey Overstreet reminding you to look closer. And let's talk about it.